I invite them to explore and keep an open mind. And I think it's that open door, that open door policy to offering chronic pain patients that opportunity to move forward in their own time, in their own way, and exploring things that might work for themselves. That's an exciting field of practice. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. Our world is polarized, and while that's something often complained about, it's also part of the natural order of things. The Tao, after all, divides undifferentiated being into yin and yang, and then, well, there you have it, opposite poles, complementary aspects that both reflect a greater unity. As humans here in the domain of Earth, we tend to lean toward one side of that unity or the other, and in doing so, miss the wholeness and double down on why our side of the spectrum is right, more true, or the way to a better future. The dance of differences is what allows us to be helpful to our patients. For example, in clinic, we know that dampness benefits from dryness just as dryness is resolved with more moisture. Those who are detail-oriented and have a predilection for controlling others could benefit from a more laissez-faire attitude, while those who are careless and unable to consider others would do better with increased ability to see how their actions affect the people around them. I want to share with you some insights I've gleaned from these past couple of years studying and practicing Salam acupuncture. Maybe this will be helpful to you in your clinical work. In the Sa'am tradition, those with an excessive sanjal tend to be meticulous and detail-oriented. There is a proper way to do things, and things should be done that way. The Xiaoyang fire in these folks is driven to control others. There's a right way, damn it, and they're here to make sure it gets done. These people are sensitive and critical, and they'll let you know when you're on the wrong side of what's right. There's an attractive lightness about those with excessive Sanjiao energy. They see well in the dark and have a notable brightness that emulates from the eyes. Contrast this with the counterbalance of Dreyin Wood, the liver. These people with excessive Yin Wood are not attentive to the outer world as they're cocooned in their own experience. Compared to the Sanjiao type, they have more a sense of live and let live, and so they've no interest in controlling others. They tend to be a bit socially clumsy and easily accused of being rude, but it's not that they have ill intent or mean to offend. They're just a bit clueless in the social realm. Being rich in Drayan blood, they're dense. Imagine the feel of a Lord of the Rings dwarf. They have that kind of solidity. They're like turtles, slow and shielded, whereas the Sanjiao excess is like a border collie, quick, sharp, and with an agenda in service of order. It's not that any particular trait or talent is good or bad, simply useful or not in any particular moment. Much as a hearty stew arises from its tapestry of flavors. Our work in clinic is to give what's needed in any particular moment. 
the virtues of the five phases, the counterbalancing climates of the six chi, the places where some nurturance is called for, and those where cutting away that which is excess and obstructing will restore the flow. It's helpful to remember that there's a place for it all. The knack is to know is what needed and in what amount. Pain is unavoidable. It's a signal that demands we pay attention. It serves a purpose, but for some, that signal is set to always on. It affects not only the person with the pain, but those that they're connected to as well. When it's children that have chronic pain, for sure, that will affect the family. And the pain can take on a life and a character of its own. Our guest today on Geological is Jonathan Reamer. He's been working with and researching chronic pain in children. There's a lot more to it beyond the usual Chinese medicine idea of blood stasis. We'll be discussing chronic pain and approaches to working with children, family relations, polyvagal theory, and more. Stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi, folks. I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office, and I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident 
about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Jonathan Reamer, welcome to Geological. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for inviting me and letting me speak today. Well, actually, you you kind of invited yourself in a way. You, I did indeed. I did. <laughs> You know, and I always appreciate that. You know, sometimes people have something and they go, I got this thing I'm doing and I don't know if you know about it, but I'd like to share it. Uh, it's one of the things I appreciate about the podcast. Sometimes there's people that I meet through the podcast and and then there's people like you that I meet because because you reach out. You're doing work with pediatrics. Yes. Yeah, so I'm currently working with the um, rheumatology team in Royal Manchester Children's Hospital in Manchester, England in the UK. And as part of the rheumatology team, not only do we see the inflammatory conditions, but we also see a lot of chronic pain and we we treat chronic pain. It's kind of weird thinking about children with chronic pain. When I think about chronic pain, I usually think about older people, people that are a little bit broken down. It's hard to imagine with kids in some ways. T- tell me more about it. I think this is the, the interesting side of it, because I think when you look at the evidence around chronic pain and what we all accept in regard to chronic pain is that we accept that um, potentially we have this pain amplification terms such as, as allodynia. We talk about uh, sympathetic nervous system upregulation in, in chronic pain. And I think what's really interesting about it is my interest in regard to my research around acupuncture and use of acupuncture and, and chronic pain in paediatrics, I suppose recognizes that there is a framework existing in, in classical Chinese medicine that already recognizes this imbalance that we've got the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system that is part of that homeostatic mechanism. And in chronic pain, certainly we know is that that mechanism goes wrong, whether it's from uh, initial trauma or I like to use the term allostatic load, which is that sense of so much external pressure on on an individual that it causes that dysfunction, causes that um, imbalance. And I think 
certainly from the acupuncture point of view, I think we've got lots of evidence in, in, in the role of acupuncture, not only from an evidence-based medicine point of view, but from classical Chinese medicine um, about regulating that and, and, and creating that harmony and balance. Um, I think we all recognize, you know, the kind of the classical diagram of yin and yang and, and you know, the, the flow of qi and the disruption of the flow of qi in sort of classical medical texts and how that, I think chronic pain offers an opportunity for us to understand how those sort of classical texts and those kind of classical understanding of pain in Chinese medicine can uh, have an appropriate answer to chronic pain, certainly not only in pediatrics, but also in adults. Yes. It's always fascinating to me when there's something that shows up on the Western medicine side, we look at it and go, oh, yeah, that actually rhymes with something that Chinese medicine talked about hundreds or thousands of years ago. Recently, uh, there was this air quote discovery of this incredible layer of tissue called the interstitium. It's this fluid filled layer in the body that connects everything together. It's kind of like fascia, but it's full of fluid and fluid flows all the way through it. And, you know, you listen to them describe the interstitium and you go, well, that's the triple burner. Pathway of fluids, yin, chi, you know, on and on and on. They couldn't find it because previously they'd been dissecting more desiccated bodies or preserved bodies. You need to have fluid in the interstitium to see it, to find it. It's both function and form. It's got both of them, you know, but there it is. I'm a little, just a little bit familiar with this idea of the nervous system getting dysregulated. So maybe there's been an injury or something and the body's actually cleared it, but the nervous system thinks something's still going on. I think you're referring to this. It sounds like you found some correlates in our Chinese medicine world in ways of treating it. So I'd, I'd like to hear a bit more about that, especially as I just got a new patient scheduled for next week. I'm not kidding you. It's funny how these things work. And it's just, you know, the kid's like a teenager and basically in pretty good health had, you know, asked about previous injuries. Well, they fell on their, on their sacrum once, but that was a long time ago and that's fine. And then some time later, this pain shows up and everybody is confused in the Western medical system. She's been through all the scans. They've looked at her blood for rheumatoid factors. It's like we can't find anything. So here, eat this gabapentin in the meantime. Yeah, and I, th and I think that's the interesting thing is I think despite what we know so far about chronic pain and also, I guess, some of the developments. So it's interesting in my research, I've touched upon the development of battlefield acupuncture so the auricular therapy you know when you look at the auricular therapy points they are addressing multifactorial components of pain so like one of the points is very much is focused on harmonizing and balancing the emotional side if you look at the definition of chronic pain from the world health organization and you look at the definition of pain from the international association for the study of pain we know that pain is multifactorial we know that they can, it contains, you know, the, all the domains of health. 
And this is what's really, I find really exciting about chronic pain and the treatment of chronic pain is that actually your approach needs to address these multifactorial components of pain. So whilst we can talk about the comparatives between, I suppose, ideas and models of sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, we also have to be uh, aware that there are these multi multifactorial components of pain that we also need to address. So rather than going down a very strong pathway of, I suppose, from a classical Chinese medical point of view of restoring the flow of qi or addressing imbalances between yin and yang, uh, which you comparatively pair to the autonomic nervous system and that homeostatic mechanism. You also have to be aware and understand those elements of different domains of health, such as psychosocial and emotional uh, health, and also what classical Chinese medicine is always trying to point us towards is this idea that the, the, the macrocosm and the microcosm that we have to also address the environmental causes of imbalances and disharmony. So I think in the way that we currently treat children for pediatric chronic pain is that we, in therapies, not only do we do the physical therapy, so the physiotherapy, but we use a lot of um, psychotherapy and occupational therapists are involved in that. And we try and sort of stay away from the pharmaceutical side of things. Well, here in the States, we love our pharmaceuticals. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, that's, that's the development, isn't it? I think that's the, the battlefield acupuncture was the first thing that kind of started to address this this issue around the pharmaceutical approaches to, to to pain but i think also i think we're still very much not able to separate acute pain from chronic pain so we know pharmacy is very good and even in classical chinese medical texts you know the the herbal medicine side of of pain management the pharmacy is very good for acute pain it gives you that sort of break uh, from the pain that allows your body to recover and get over the pain. But when you've got the chronicity of pain, it's something very different. And, and we see ourselves. We still see it ourselves. It's a, it's a different thing. Mm. It's a very different animal. <laughs> yes. I, I want to get into the battle. Well, actually, tell us a little bit about the battlefield at this point, how this fits into the picture. I don't know much about it. I've heard about it. I've looked at the points. Some of them are points I recognize. Some of them are points that are areas or tissues in the brain and, and very focused on that. And the other thing I'm curious about, when I've seen the, the battlefield acupuncture done, they've got these like darts or studs. That's right, yeah. That are almost like staples that, that go into the ear. And... So I've got some questions about it. It's like, do you have to do that? Are there other ways to stimulate those points? Because, I mean, I don't know about other acupuncturists, but I know for me, at times I put a point in and it's like, oop, that's not the right point. And taking out one of those does not look like, like a walk in the park. So it's interesting comparatively. There is a lot of research around auricular stimulation in functional pain. Again, this is a different category of, of, of pain that we, I suppose deal with it's something that we we don't approach from our team as such at royal manchester children's hospital it's very much 
comes under neurosciences and neurology, but the functional pain and, and I guess the functional, I suppose, diseases, you know, in terms of things like functional epilepsy or other things very similar to that. There's a lot of evidence around um, the use of auricular stimulation. And I think potentially the, the evidence is around this idea of, of vagal nerve stimulation. Comparative studies um, where they've looked at autonomic dysfunction in functional pain. So by using the, the battlefield acupuncture in, in a auricular therapy or auricular acupuncture delivery, what you're essentially doing is you, you are delivering a, a treatment that is auricular stimulation to the vagal nerve and modifying the autonomic nervous system through that direct route it, through the ear. It can be very powerful. Um, I think what's interesting is auricular therapy and certainly how it's evolved alongside, I suppose, developments like battlefield acupuncture where you know using very specific points to to modify the autonomic nervous system and and therefore you're addressing this this imbalance between sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system in terms of using it in a pediatric setting uh obviously kind of the idea of putting studs in in children's ears uh, and also the care of it you know in terms of what what children do with their ears, I think, uh, has to be considered in that picture. I think probably isn't appropriate. However, that I don't think that should exclude the fact that potentially auricular stimulation or auricular acupuncture and the choice of auricular acupuncture from more choice of points through Chinese medical uh, auricular acupuncture, I don't think that should be excluded at all. I think actually... The acceptance of auricular acupuncture in a paediatric setting might be more preferable than using other point selection. Absolutely. That, that makes complete sense to me. Now, when you're dealing with kids, look, sometimes kids don't need a whole lot of stimulation to get their systems to change. Do you use needles with them? Do you use ear seeds? Do you like maybe sometimes use some electric? What, what kind of stimulation do you find? helpful. I, I suspect maybe you've done some research on that. Anecdotally, I think from my experience, because of our approaches with chronic pain, we, what we, what we do currently in, uh, and, and which is a very evidence-based approach is that we, we, we look at uh, strategies. So we try and encourage acceptance and self-management for chronic pain in, in, in pediatrics. So, for example, we do the physical therapies where we're encouraging exercise and movement. We are using occupational therapies to kind of look at how we can modify activities of daily living that can help children cope with the, the chronic pain, you know, including support for sleep hygiene, um, we provide psychotherapy, which is very much around the idea of, of acceptance. So I think for that model to continue as our evidence-based standard treatment and have our acupuncture fit into that, I think ear seeds is a very good idea because what you can do is you can put the ear seeds in place for auricular simulation 
and then you can build that into that self-management program where they are self-stimulating and it's safe and you know, we, we're not we're not using you know anything that's invasive so it's it's, it's very non-invasive and i think also acceptance so while we're asking them to accept their chronic pain we're we were also want them to accept the treatment as well and i think that is is quite powerful hello everyone and cecil sturman here a working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words the power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Anne Cecil Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. I, I want to come back to this acceptance piece, and, and I'm curious about the psychosocial factors as well. That we're, I'm sticking a pin in it right now so we can come back to it. But before we get to that, I've heard you use some different phrases about different kinds of pain, sympathetic, parasympathetic, Functional pain? I think it's the first time I've heard that term, functional pain. Thinking to myself, what is there functional about pain? That sounds like dysfunction. But I, but I think that means something. Could you just, for those of us who don't understand the kind of framework that, that you might be using with your research and your work at the hospital, the way you guys are thinking about pain, just like a quick introduction to the kinds of pain that children present with and how you guys think about it, both from the Western side, neurology-based, you know, that whole thing, and from the Chinese side? I know it's a small question, but there you have it. I think I'll start off with functional pain because I think that's probably the biggest mystery to most people. But I, th I, I always kind of use the idea that it's probably the first thing that we learn in terms of pain it's that situation where we're not saying that there's no pain. I think this is where the confusion lies. I think because of the sort of evidence-based, the rational approach, the biomedical model can be very much dismissed as, as real pain. So we're not in any sense saying that there is no pain. But what we, what we accept with functional pain is this disconnect between parts of our ourself so you know when we talk about you know cartesian duality about mind body split i think functional pain is probably a representative of that is there is this disconnect between our physical self and our sense of physical self and our much more i suppose psychological uh, mental self and it's through this disconnect that we have this 
dysfunction where potentially pain becomes a way of communicating that disharmony. Now that sounds very ambiguous <laughs> and it sounds very abstract, but what I want to do is take people back to the idea that those first experiences of stomach ache when we're a child and we get the day off school and when we get the day off school we we make that connection between that sort of physical sense of stomach ache or stomach stomach pain and not having to go into school so actually potentially that is our first experience of functional pain and it's not that we haven't got stomach ache and it's not that we we want the day, day of school, but then maybe on future episodes of stomach pain, there isn't an organic cause, but the biggest driver is the psychological that we don't want to go into school and therefore we get a manifestation of pain. Uh-huh. Because we know that our stomach pain in the past has given us a day off of school I don't want to go to school for whatever reason. I'm having trouble with somebody there or there's a test or I'm just anxious or whatever. And so, well, stomach pain keeps me out of school. At least it has in the past. And my suspicion is if that happens a number of times, that groove gets deepened. There's the function and the dysfunction in a sense. I don't think it's a conscious thing that happens or occurs. I think it's that process those i think from if we're looking at it from a neurological perspective i think those neural pathways have been developed and and it's the it's the trigger of those neural pathways by other areas of our brain or maybe our limbic system our emotional side and our experience of pain that then manifests pain in a physical sense so with these types of patients we're never saying to them you know we don't we don't believe that you're in pain but we we understand your pain to be very much not an organic cause and i think it's very interesting certainly and i don't want to kind of dwell too much about functional pain because obviously you know there's other types of pain to kind of discuss but from a functional pain perspective i think it's very interesting that the expectation from patients and families is that there is an organic cause. And this is where it sort of, there is this kind of then almost a Venn diagram and crossover with chronic pain. But also, like I say, the International Association of the Study of Pain recognises that these factors do also occur in, in, in acute pain, uh, but are easily managed through, through, through pharmacy and medications more. All that does is basically upregulate your sympathetic nervous system. It, you know, it kind of putting you into that sort of fight, fright, or sometimes, you know, that flight situation where you're very switched on, you're very reactive, you're very defensive. And we know that pain is there to protect us. You know, if we if we bang our elbow and, and our elbow's injured, we move it, it's, in, it's painful, so we don't move it until it gets better. And then maybe the next day we try moving it and it feels a little bit better. Or maybe when we take it to the end of its range, it's, it's it's painful. So we don't take it to the end of range because you know it allows us to heal. So pain has a very very important is a very important process of of healing in our bodies. And I think from that perspective, we've embodied that we have that idea of what pain is that we're always constantly looking for a physiological cause. So it's very very interesting how there is this overlay. Yeah, I I don't mean to suggest that we consciously, oh, I got a stomach ache, the stomach ache keeps me out of school, 
I think my point is more toward our physicality, our psychology, our spirit, our mental experience, mind-body, for lack of a better word. I hate that. But it's so entangled that our emotionality is completely entangled with her physicality. And so if something happens there emotionally, especially unconsciously, and it tangles in with the body, now you've got the pain where we can't find an organic cause unless you consider that our emotionality is part of our organic being, in a sense. I think this is innately is some of the problem that we have is that... It's not something that we, we, we learn, you know, we don't learn that our being, our wholeness, our complete self is not just the physicality, but it, it's multi-layered and certainly even from a neurological pathways that are involved in pain, we know that different areas of the brain that are processing, you know, memory, emotion, they all play a part, not just in not just in functional, not just in chronic pain, but also in acute pain. So I think what we have to understand is that pain is there to protect us. And I think starting from that base point is how do we modify that response? And this is quite interesting in terms of the inflammatory patients I see, not the pain patients, but the inflammatory patients I see is actually we we do very well at modifying that immune response in rheumatology, you know, 50% from pharmaceutically and 50% using physical therapies. And we, we manage their, I suppose, rheumatological disease through that modification of the defense mechanism and that immune system. And comparatively, it's, it's a similar approach really with pain that, you know, what we want to try and do is modulate that defense system that pain is there to try and protect us to allow us to heal um and i think when we get into areas of chronicity something has already got stuck or has gone wrong that we then have to approach it in a very different way so what are you finding can be done with acupuncture we we, we just spoke a few minutes ago about like the battlefield acupuncture seems to be alpha auricular therapy Sounds to be useful. Sounds like it's very useful. How else are you using and, and bringing acupuncture into this? And I'm especially curious about the studies that you've done and how those are structured. So I think the starting point is that idea of acceptance. So in terms of bringing acupuncture in, I think what we find with the current therapy approaches that we're using for treating pain, the non-pharmaceutical approaches that we're using with physical therapies and, and occupational therapy and psychotherapy, is that we have to have acceptance. That, that acceptance and that engagement of their diagnosis is very important for them to start that journey, that journey to rehabilitation, that journey to management and living and accepting pain. So when you say acceptance, hang on, I'm gonna, I, just, I just have to dig into this for a moment. In this context, what does acceptance mean? So I think, to me, I think this goes, and, and, and different people will have a different opinion about this, I'm sure. I think if you go back to the model of disharmony and you go back to 
the idea of pain amplification or sympathetic upregulation in chronicity of pain, that what you want to try and do is you want to try and balance the side, sides out. And I think, again, this is, you know, it's, it's classical Chinese med- medical theory. You know, it's there in the classical Chinese medicine text about, you know, restoring the flow, restoring the balance. But from, from, from our perspective, you know, we have to talk, use different terms. You have to use the, the idea of the, the autonomic nervous system. And acceptance, what acceptance it is. It is. Yeah. Which is a really helpful model, isn't it? Because, look, I, I love our Chinese medicine ideas and our theories and things. But from my Western mind, there's something very unsatisfying about, well, we're just moving the chi and that will create the flow. And, and I'm thinking, yeah, and there's a side of my mind that wants more. I get it. I'm good with creating the flow. I know what it feels like to be in flow. Things are great. But the specifics, I think that they matter. And and so when I hear you talk about autonomic nervous system, when I hear that there's influence of the vagus nerve, these things seem like something that's tangible, useful, and actionable from both the Western and Eastern side. Plus, look, we talk to our patients about, I'm going to create balance, and our patients rightly deserve to roll their eyes at us because we didn't say anything that makes any sense to them. But talk about your autonomic nervous system in a way that we can have one foot deeply in Chinese medicine, the other deeply in Western medicine, and really, I think, have the capacity to communicate something. So, yeah, tell me more about the autonomic nervous system. I'm curious. So going back to the idea of acceptance, and I think from from my experience, that acceptance is a key point. And we we have patients sometimes coming into to sessions and they have doubt. They have embodied angst in, in where, about the diagnosis of chronic pain, primary chronic pain that you know, the, the diagnosis is pain itself. It's there's nothing causing it, there's nothing behind it. You know, there's nothing that's that we need to kind of do any further investigation to rule out. So acceptance is the starting point. Now, for one approach, and I think one one way we can integrate that with with acupuncture is that that acceptance in itself is that decompression. It's that down regulation of that sympathetic nervous system. So they're not worrying. They're not concerned and they're not looking for other sources of, of their pain. They have got to a point where they accept they've still got pain. They're still experiencing pain. It's still very dysfunctional. It's still having a massive impact on their uh, activities of daily living. But that acceptance in itself is starting to lower that sympathetic nervous system. And I think that's, that's when we start to deliver the strategies that we currently provide from our standardized treatment. And, and I think that's where we can also use, I think if I said acupuncture was an adjunct in this, in, in this state, it would probably downplay the role of acupuncture. And I don't want to downplay the role of acupuncture. I think it's more that it becomes an enhancement of what we deliver. So one of the things that we, we deliver, not only just the physical therapy of using movement, and helping to downregulate the sympathetic nervous system through through movement, through exercise, but using uh, I use a lot of breath work in my practice. 
So using the sympathetic downregulation, using breath control. And at the same time, we can use point selection that also has a positive effect on parasympathetic nervous system. So we might use heart meridian points. So something like heart seven might be a useful point that kind of helps to bring into balance that parasympathetic side that is very much about relax, rest, everything's fine. It's like that cozy blanket, that comfort zone that we can use as point selection for alongside that. So I think some people might say acupuncture as an adjunct, but actually it's an enhancement of what you're already delivering. I think also, you know, when we're looking at the benefits and the evidence base around movement therapies, so exercise, and I find this particularly interesting in terms of your chronic regional pain syndromes where... You know, you've got a lower limb is, is someone's experience anodynia in the lower limb. They experience dysfunction or inability to move the joints. I think you could reasonably use acupuncture to use meridians in the lower limb, even on the opposite leg, because there's that comparison with the I suppose the nerve roots that that go into the 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 spine that also is shared with the leg that is affected by chronic regional pain. So actually, you could be doing movement therapy with with the affected leg at the same time as you applying it or using point selection on the on the other leg, giving that almost that stimulation to the same same nerve root. Yes, this thing about acceptance, I think it's not just with children and chronic pain. I think of many adults who come into my practice. You probably have them, well, I don't know how many adults you see, but, you know, folks listening, there's the folks who come in and they don't know what it is. They're looking for a diagnosis. They just want a diagnosis. Sometimes I've actually had people say to me, I don't care if it's cancer. I just want to know what's going on which is a weird thing to hear. That's very true. Yeah, it is true. And hearing you talk about acceptance, I realize that this is something I can really take into my practice and give people the possibility that you don't know, we don't know, and you might not know. It might actually not be knowable, but that doesn't mean we can't actually do something about your experience of it. That's a really interesting point, Michael, because hearing you say that excites me because one of the things that I often say in this patient cohort is keep an open mind. It's not necessarily what you choose to do. It's what works. And that's where we provide multiple strategies for them. Some of the treatments involve desensitization. And we have a very, very uh, standard pack of an assortment or a toolbox for desensitization that we give to patients and and parents. And we ask them, we invite them. I always invite, I don't tell them, I don't suggest this is what you need to do. I invite them to explore and keep an open mind. And I think it's that open door, that open door policy to offering chronic pain patients that opportunity to move forward in their own time, in their own way, 
and exploring things that might work for themselves. That's an exciting field of practice. I would agree with you. There are so many times I find myself in clinic, patients are kicking out this idea that it maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Da, 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 da. It's like, well, why don't you explore one of those? Like, do it for a month. Like, be your own N of one study. Do an experiment. Like, okay, you think you have trouble with dairy. Okay, maybe, I don't know. Why not just give it up for a month? As an experiment, not forever, as an experiment. See what happens. That's a, that's a really different thing than, well, you're lactose intolerant and you should do an elimination diet and, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's like, do an experiment. Who doesn't like to be playful and experiment with things? I think we all have kind of an inner child aspect that when invited to engage like that, you could take something as arduous as changing your diet, but, well, if it's a playful experiment, that's a whole different thing, isn't it? That opens up that open-mindedness that you were just uh, talking about. I think also as well, in my mind, and I'm not saying it's the same for, for everyone, but by giving people that invite, by encourage them to explore, I think you're also creating that safe space. And I think once you create that safe space, everything's on the table or anything can be on the table that you're also, you know, if we kind of go, have to go back to kind of the neuro neurology of pain, we are also downregulating the sympathetic nervous system. Tell me more about the safe space and bringing that into the treatment. I suppose this this comes back to also what you touched on before about the role of parents. I think you kind of we, we didn't get into a conversation about that, but we touched upon, I suppose, that component parents' role in chronic pain patients. And I think what we have to do is we have to also address and create that space through making sure that parents have that level of understanding as well and parents have acceptance. So we do part of our standard treatment. We run a program which is about understanding and accepting pain, but living with it and parents are involved in that. So we want to also make sure that parents are on board with acceptance as well. And I think it's about making sure that parent-child relationship is a relationship of support and understanding as well. So I, I think that's probably some of the steps we do to deliver that space. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six-chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, 
Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing weld points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. I'm glad you bring it up. That sounds like an important component. I hadn't thought about it until I heard you say it, and I hear you say it, and I go, yeah, of course you want to get the parents on board. Um, Again, I mentioned I recently had somebody schedule to bring their child in. One of the things that I noticed in that conversation of getting them scheduled is, wow, this parent is really pissed off. This parent is really angry about what's going on, how they've been treated. It doesn't make sense. It's not fair. You know, I've seen this before. Sometimes I've seen it more with like more elderly people where one's being the caregiver for the other one and bringing them in for treatment. And I look at that caregiver and it's like, oh man, you need some help. And and often what I would do is while the person who's being brought in for treatment is getting treated, I'll take that caregiver and it's like, why don't you just lay down here? Let me put a few needles in your ear because that person really needs some support. That's a very exciting uh, premise that I think that's something I've, uh, we've not considered. I think a lot of the, what we're currently offering for parents is very much around the psychosocial, but actually I think you've got a very valid point. I think why not also offer the shared experience of, of acupuncture and you know, you kind of, Bridging, bridging that experience between parent and, and child. And maybe the point selection that you use for parents it might be something very different, but the shared experience is one of unification and creating understanding. I love it. Again, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. It's germane to uh, someone I'll be seeing soon. The shared experience. Look, they're already having a shared experience of, of difficulty and dysfunction and everything that that goes with having, you know, your child not be well, bringing in the shared experience of the acupuncture. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that. I mean, it'd be fun to do some studies on it. You know, but as a clinician, I'm thinking, well, that's an easy end of one study that I can do in my clinic and just see what happens. I think it would be an exciting prospect to to look at the the impact of that. I think that's definitely future. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that idea. <laughs> I think that's gonna be a future future research idea because I think we do we do the combined psychosocial we do the psychosocial therapy with with parents and we do some of the education with parents um, and we do combined parent and child therapy as well as, as separate therapies for parent, but we we don't. That we haven't at this point considered acupuncture for for parents, and I think that's I like the idea of that. I really do. I think I think what we do find, and I think it's you know again, this is more sort of anecdotal from clinic experience, is that we do find that we do get resistance from parents, and the impact of that, I suppose, progress with the with the child. I think we haven't yet fully understood that. We haven't fully understood that potentially, you know, we can have regression with acceptance because 
what parents are going through. Our focus is always, you know, is, is, is although we include parents and although often we sort of talk about treating families and not, not patients, the, our, our focus is still on the paediatric patient. And actually, you know, whilst we have that approach that helps create that supportive environment and that team around the child, we we don't actually think as much around treating what the parents are going through. And it's interesting that it's the parents that are the one, I suppose, the ones that are on that journey with that child. And it's it's sometimes we, you know, if these, these patients are coming into an acute setting and they get admitted and, and they go through all the investigations to rule out potentially you know organic cause and you know whilst we don't necessarily think it's necessarily functional but it could it has got some i suppose organic origin in the sense of chronicity of pain that parents can get upset and can get quite agitated by the idea of a diagnosis of pain and that there's nothing no other causes and and pain itself is the diagnosis and and we do get we do get that that experiences but we also get that that regression along that journey and we often probably assume that it's an amalgam of patient and parent that is regressing with that acceptance but actually do we fully understand the actual parent component and actually if we treat that parent maybe we can counteract that it's a great question you know, one of the things I love about practicing medicine is uh, you get lots of great questions. Sometimes you get answers, but you should get good questions. And think about like family systems therapy. They'll bring in, you know, like this troublesome kid, right, the identified patient. Well, maybe there's other stuff going on in the family. That kid just happens to be sensitive to it, or they're the ones that are keeping the lid on a, a troublesome situation. As the system changes, often the identified patient Whatever issue they have will change as well. That that whole family systems thing is is absolutely fascinating, and it really makes us consider the whole psychosocial aspect of the kind of creatures that we are. I think this directly comes back to our neurology in some ways. I don't know a whole lot about polyvagal theory other than I've talked to a few people, I've read a few books. I'd love to get your thoughts on the whole polyvagal idea. It seems to me, working hypothesis on my part, okay, because I'm no expert, but it seems that the vagus nerve and its various pathways to the different organs and viscera, the way it connects us in profound ways, both physically and psychoemotively, it just might be the antenna that makes us the intensely social creatures that we are. What I'm thinking now from you saying that, Michael, is is this idea that one of our strategies, one of our approaches with chronic pain is we we touch upon circadian rhythm. So we, we talk about diurnal patterns and how we could modify them to get better patient outcomes. Um, we have these, you know, in a age-appropriate language, we have these discussions with our patients and we talk about routines and we talk about modification of routines but actually 
when you talk about the idea of this polyvagal theory that actually we live in units, don't we? We live in these social units and, you know, call them families, call them social networks, peer groups. And I suppose how these have an impact on patients with chronic pain is, is important. And that's why we talk about circadian rhythms and routines and strategies to manage our routines and, and our you know, we, we use things like pacing to talk about how patients can, you know, manage their energy levels or, or kind of become more in tune with, with that more, I suppose, that macrocosm of rhythm that embedded in the bodies are operating in. So I think it's very important to kind of think about, I suppose, the impact of of those systems and those those routines and and how that relates to autonomic, I suppose, homeostasis. I hadn't thought about that until you mentioned it, and I'm glad you did because it makes a lot of sense. Look, there's lots of ways of intervening, and sometimes it's with a needle, sometimes it's with food, sometimes it's with medication or herbs. Sometimes if you can just break a some seemingly innocuous habit, the system changes. It is. It's about changing the system. We don't always know what the biggest lever is going to be. Yeah, it's about changing the systems. It sounds like a fair amount of that goes into your research. You're not just looking at an individual with their neurology and all that. It sounds like you're also bringing maybe even uh, social influences. You used the term earlier in the conversation that there could be issues with, and I love this term, not that I want to have it. it, it like rings true. You said embodied angst. I think when I'm talking about disembodied angst, potentially it's this disconnect. It's going back to this disconnect between components of ourself, the physica physicality of ourself and the mental and the emotional and other aspects of herself, which we know we, we, we've got lots of different cultural terms for. From a Chinese medicine point of view, we can talk about different aspects of, of a person that represents that, but it's that disconnect, is that embodied angst that the physical sense of being is, is in doubt. And I think potentially there's, we're at risk of this with this idea of, and again, I, I go back to this quite a bit with the idea of this allostatic load that our operating systems, that is our complete self, is struggling with the what we're putting on it and the overstimulation. You know, a lot of our patients that we see with chronic pain, a significant number have sensory processing disorders. They've got a diagnosis of Autistic, autistic spectrum disorders or they've they've been misdiagnosed or not not diagnosed so when their operating system is effectively essentially overloaded or stimulated and this allostatic load there there is this kind of embodied disconnect and that's a way of dealing with or i should say disconnecting from the discomfort of that heavier load that's on the nervous system do i have that right yeah, I think I think potentially you've got a couple of things going on. I think potentially, and and this is this is highly theoretical and and my opinion more than anything else. I think potentially you've got 
the defense mechanism of pain, like the alarm system of pain. And then that is a trigger to the, again, making reference to sympathetic nervous, and that's the, that's the trigger to sympathetic or regulation. But at the same time, you've got this disconnect that in itself creates a state of unrest and a state of disharmony, which just then is, is just, is almost like the fuel is the fuel that drives the engine of pain. Well, we talk in Chinese medicine about externally generated problems and internally generated problems. It sounds like an internally generated problem. Yeah, very much so. And I think this is, this is where I guess some people listening to this might make the connection between this idea of flow. I think very, very, very early on, Michael, you talked about this idea of, you know, restoring the flow uh, or restoring the, the movement of chi. And actually, I think that's where that internal process is, is halted or interrupted or disrupted that then cause, causes that disconnect. How long have you been doing this uh, investigation with pediatric pain now? I mean, going back to, going back to my own history, I, I, was, I started off in anthropology. I'd always had an interest in, um, through anthropology, the idea of um, illness in society and the, the role of illness, uh, how, how actually illness is quite functional. <laughs> going back to functional pain, illness can be quite functional for the societies or for systems, and actually it gives us that opportunity to address some of the, I suppose, what we're talking about in terms of Chinese medicine, those external factors that create disharmony and cause internal um, disconnect. So I was always very interested in that. And I had the opportunity to kind of towards the end of my degree to do some um, stuff with the Wellcome Trust was at Manchester University was, uh, had a study group that was around um, Chinese medicine. So that got me really interested in in Chinese medicine. When we're going back, you know, we're talking about the 90s here. So I, I was very interested in Chinese medicine and I just wanted to learn more about it. So, And I'd already previously been exposed to the idea of qi through um, qigong practice and tai chi practice. So it, these things sort of started to kind of sort of fit into place. I've, I have this very uh, opinion of... My own journey through this is is very things things just fall. If I just leave it, things will just fall into place. So yeah, so from 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 anthropology, I was very interested in in Chinese medicine, and it was I only got into physiotherapy because I think at the time I remember after doing my anthropology degree and doing some studies with various individuals and and doing various uh, further practical studies around China and Chinese medicine and and Korean microacupuncture systems i think they changed there was something if i remember rightly because i'm going back to the millennium i think they changed something about the 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 requirement that you couldn't do acupuncture uh, unless and i think it was an, probably probably an eu directive that you couldn't do it unless you were uh, qualified either as a as a as a doctor or you qualified as a healthcare practitioner so then someone sort of said that's what you need to do <laughs> so so that's what I did and I was uh, you know I think throughout I've always kind of recognized the role that acupuncture certainly in terms of chronic pain 
And in terms of pain management, so not just chronic pain, but also acute pain and different pain, um, I suppose, categories that we want to kind of split up in, in terms of Western medical systems. And there is a strong body of, of evidence behind that. And with that, there's also an opportunity. So the way I see it in terms of, you know, what we can call Western medical approach and compared to classical Chinese medical approach is actually pain is, is this opportunity. It's this opportunity of actually understanding or bringing understanding between these two systems because the models of pain and the models of pain in classical Chinese medicine, okay, the terminology is different, but they're very much aligned. And I think often we fall into a trap with Western medicine. And I'm not saying that classical Chinese medicine is, isn't evidence-based, you know, it's, it's based on empirical observations over, you know, hundreds of years and opinion about that. But I think in evidence-based medicine that from a Western point of view, we fall into this trap of um, what I call homogeneity is that we want to come up with, you know, X, Y, and Z that's going to fit the majority of our patients. And I think that's where the problem we have and that trap in understanding the role of the classical Chinese medicine in these patients, that it doesn't have that approach. It has that very much that individualized approach and we're looking for patterns rather than the homogeneity. If we've got X, Y, and Z, we can apply it to all our patients and most of them. You know, the probability factor is most of them will get better. It's, you know, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, it's so curious to me because, look, us Westerners, we have this very strong bent toward individuality, very high, you know, value for most of us. And yet we've created a medicine that's homogenous. You look at Asian cultures, they tend to be more homogenous and collective, generally speaking. And yet, the medicine that came out of China, now all throughout Asia, but came from China originally, fiercely, wildly individual from a culture that's more collective. I mean, if you're looking for evidence that yin-yang is a real thing, there's an example right there. So curious. And, and so I, I love the work that you're doing because you're taking both of these sides and you're looking at, well, Look at all these interwoven connections that are actually there. I, I think that's the opportunity, definitely. I think the opportunity is is to look look, here's the here's the here's a relationship. Here's the relationship through through the experience of of pain patients. We're we we are using different language, but we're talking the same thing. We're talking, we're on the same page here. And I guess it's just about and certainly from what I've done so far with, with my scoping review, um, it's about finding those things that is going to appease the evidence base, but also, I suppose, highlight and celebrate those aspects in the cl classical Chinese medical approach. If it's real, it should show up in both. Yes, and I think so far it is more about the terminology uh, there was a there was a great study i think it was done i think it was done done last year um i'll have to 
give you the details of it, but uh, it was a, a study done by Coco et, et al. And it was looking at um, the idea of classical Chinese or, or, or traditional Chinese medicine as they used in their study and Western medicine and actually really the the it's more our problem I suppose our problem with evidence-based medicine that we don't acknowledge the the traditional Chinese medicine approaches or the classical Chinese medicine approaches because we're very much focused on this idea of one thing should fit fit everyone who has this diagnosis. Yep. Well, you know, you need a right hand and a left hand, just like you need a right side of the brain and a left side of the brain. So thanks for your work and bringing these things together. Any research or things that you'd like to share with us? Uh, I'll have it on the show notes page. So folks can just head over there and, and check that out and find you if they would like to be in touch. I've thoroughly enjoyed this walk through so funny functional pain at the beginning I'm like what's functional about it and now I have this delightful question of hmm I wonder what's functional about this I think that might lead to some interesting uh, clinical insight so thank you so much for the conversation today what's really fascinating is that we we try and categorize pain in different ways um which almost gives us permission to treat it in different ways and using different approaches. But actually, you know, when we're talking about functional pain, we're talking about also, you know, similar aspects of the multifactorial components in functional pain are also present in chronic pain, also present in acute pain. And whilst some things are effective in acute pain that are less effective in chronic pain, um, that are also less effective in functional pain. I think there's there's definitely a field of work that we can learn better approaches by looking at the role and the, I suppose, patterns that classical Chinese medicine looks for in supporting a patient in pain. I think that's that's probably a good way to summarize. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks for all the work that you're doing, and uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for uh, having me on the show. Acupuncture is famous for treating pain, for getting rid of it. But there are situations where pain is a companion. It's not going away, and important ways a person has to learn how to live with it. We see this in the conventional medicine world with the pain management specialty, which relies primarily on medication and perhaps some PT. Our Chinese medicine world, we too have our methods. And this conversation with Jonathan reminds me of how we can work with the body, the spirit, family connections, and the myriad of relationships in the world. There may not be easy answers, but for sure, there are possibilities to explore. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, 
That's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.